A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Leaving certain limbo once again as ASTI pulls out of the talks with the Department of Education. We'll have the latest reaction. Plus, Tishuk Michal Martin is still confident that critical mass for vaccinations will be reached by September. But is this realistic? And how will variants impact on the efficacy of vaccines? On our first panel is the Minister of State, Peter Burke, and Duncan Smith, the Labour TD. And later, love in a time of corona, with the usual places like coppers closed and social distancing now a part of life. How do you go about dating in a pandemic? And how is COVID affecting long-term relationships? Get in touch via Twitter with the hashtag TonightVMTV. But first this evening, the shock news that the ASTI has pulled out of talks with the Department of Education on this year's Leaving Cert. ASTI General Secretary Kieran Christie joins us now via Skype. Kieran, with over 60,000 pupils who are doing the exams and all their parents were expecting some certainty today from this, why now this? Good evening, Matt. Of course, uh, certainty is something that uh, all partners uh, in education are craving in relation to this year's Leaving Certificate, and that's certainly something that we have been working towards. And we accepted an invitation from the Minister uh, uh, about a week ago uh, to enter in intensive discussions in relation to it, and they've gone awry, quite frankly. Uh, they're uh, looking at options that are essentially calculated grades uh, with, with the Leaving Cert uh, and aspects of it as, as sort of a backup to that approach. That's not what everybody is interested in, in terms of providing a meaningful Leaving Certificate experience for our students. And to that extent, it's unacceptable. What is wrong with calculated grades? Do you have a problem with the way they gave results in 2020? Well, Matt, certainly, uh, as you know, uh, the courts are full with cases uh, dealing with the uh, outfall from last year's process. And we had unseemly protests outside the Ministry for Education offices on Marlborough Street in the days after the results were released. By any standards, I don't think we could imagine that what happened last year uh, was anything to be uh, looking back on with great fondness. And we're in a worse position this year because uh, you recall schools closed down in March of last year, courses were finished, mocks had been completed, Christmas exams had been done the prior Christmas and all the rest of it. There were assessment events on which the calculated grades could be, uh, 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 the foundation for them was there. It's not there this year. None of those events have taken place this year because of COVID-19. So the evidence uh, available to teachers and to schools to provide calculated grades is very scant indeed. Now, that may make a lot of sense, but is it also the case that teachers simply don't want to receive the type of stick that they got after last year's results, particularly when rankings in classrooms became known to pupils and parents? Well, certainly uh, teachers uh, engaged 
uh, with that process uh, with the best of good intentions. And you recall, uh, with all the controversies that are, are, are arose at a later point in relation to the, the standardization processes, the only grouping that came out of it uh, with great credibility were the teachers, quite frankly. But that said, um, we're conscious that we have a situation this year where we have students in our schools who are under enormous stress. And uh, if, for instance, we are also conscious that if, for instance, we had an inc incident like we had at Christmas time and schools closed down in May, June time or whatever, uh, we, nobody can predict the future, uh, there is a need for a, a contingency. And uh, we're more than uh, up for putting that in place. But if you want the Leaving Cert to go ahead, as is traditional in June, how are you going to achieve that when nobody's even back at school at present and when there are the orals and the practicals and project work that still has to be done? Well, Matt, all the indicators are there uh, that uh, in the coming period of time, schools will reopen and uh, with the lockdowns being eased and all the rest of it. And it is February. It is uh, four months away. Uh, the possibility of running uh, a leaving search that uh, has already had adaptations built into it to accommodate the loss of school time uh, remains. And that's, uh, in our opinion, the premier option. The idea that the, we've been dealing with in, in the talks, that that would be ditched in favour of a calculated grading process uh, at this point in the year is, is uh, it's premature and giving up the ghost on, on the Leaving Cert much too early. And I will also say this, that, you know, there's culpability here on the part of the State Exams Commission and the Department of Education because uh, advertising, you would imagine, you, every bet would have been hedged and matters would have been attended to earlier this year than normal. But the recruitment processes for examiners and for superintendents in relation to all the elements that you've just said that mentioned there, uh, Matt, and none of that process has been done. It's normally done in December of the previous year. We're in February now, and none of those advertisements have been placed. Kieran Christie, thank you very much for joining us on The Tonight Show. Thank you. Now, Minister for State Peter Burke of and Labour TD Duncan Smith join us on the panel. Peter, this is some mess, isn't it? You've listened there to what Kieran Christie had to say. Is there any of that you can disagree with? Oh, it's a huge concern and uh, I could see this evening coming up the amount of emails that we've got already with students hugely concerned about the situation but I think we have to be careful in how we approach it. We urgently need the STI to get back in the room. I think we need to discuss Isn't this. Isn't it damning of the Minister and the Department that the ASTI decided it was necessary to leave the room? There's a lot of different components involved in delivering education. We know that through our education partners, it's not that the minister can obviously make a decision and everyone has to go along with it. She's a very difficult role to deliver uh, the Leaving Cert in a very difficult backdrop, a very difficult environment. And the challenges are only being highlighted there in terms of uh, not as much to go on as you had with the Leaving Certificate last year. And we've seen the huge uh, concerns that happened subsequently. So why then are they saying that the Minister Foley was trying to come up with an alternative to the traditional Leaving Cert, which they say simply cannot work? Well, I don't know the actual logistics of the meetings, but I do know Minister Foley has reached out and asked to meet the STI tomorrow. So I hope that will happen. I would encourage him to do that. And I don't think, uh, you know, I want to dial down the rhetoric. It's obviously the important Finnegan thing here is to get a result. parliamentary party meeting last night raised significant concerns about the way this has all been handled. Indeed, I think he even passed a motion in relation to it. 
Can you only imagine if you were having that meeting tonight after this had happened? I mean, how much confidence does Fine Gael have in this Fianna Fáil Minister for Education? Absolutely, and I was uh, expressing concern too. It is a huge concern, and because we're getting that back from parents, we're getting it back from students, it's a very stressful time in their lives. But we do need to try and get a solution. The only way we'll get a solution if people are in the room and they trash it are out. Are you happy in Fine Gael with the way the Minister has handled this? I think the Minister is doing her best. Uh, it's a very difficult situation. Is and her the best good is, enough? It will be. I think we will get a result out of this because, you know, it is a very difficult situation. We have to appreciate that. The problem is with uh, COVID-19, with this pandemic, is that when certainty is given by government, the disease mocks that certainty. So it's very difficult but to But hold on a second. On. We were told the schools would go back after January. Then they were delayed. Then the minister floated the idea of a three-day week for leaving certs. That didn't happen. The minister tried to get back special needs education earlier than it did. It finally happens today. Isn't this a long catalogue of failures on the part of the Minister. There has been pressures and I think we have to learn lessons from that. And one of the lessons I think was that, you know, unfortunately commitments were made that weren't deliverable. And this is why I think it's so important to get the STI back in the room. We really have to do that because dialogue and negotiation is the only way we'll get forward. Dr. Smith, are the ASTI being responsible walking away from these talks at this particular time? Their fellow trade unionists, the TUI, didn't. The one position I would share with uh, uh, Peter, Peter on this is that we would ask that the ASTI would re-enter the room. Nothing will be resolved from outside the room and this matter is of vital importance. What happened tonight will have sent shockwaves through uh, the living rooms of homes up and down the country, not just of Leaving Cert students. We have to remember as well, there are thousands of students in non-state exams, both in primary and secondary, who are waiting for the Leaving Cert issue to be resolved to then find out when they are going to go back to school. The pressures building up in households is absolutely huge and we need to be cognizant so of them. How would you solve it? Uh, well, we, we, no one has the exact silver bullet for this, but what changed the narrative on this a couple of weeks ago was when Labour spokesperson Ayanna Reardon requested the minister quite strongly to say nothing and get into the room and speak with the stakeholders. And that's what happened. And what we have heard from then is that negotiations were slow, they're incremental, but that they were moving forward and that we were expecting an announcement on the Leaving Cert next week. Now, you mentioned culpability. The one thing that the Minister could have done, which would have given her some cover, was if she had lived up to her commitment to have an independent review of what happened in Leaving Cert 2020 uh, in order to learn for Leaving Cert 2021. That independent review never took place. So that's regrettable. But we would like the stakeholders to get back into the room. No one said this would be easy. Okay, it's very easy to turn around and tell people to talk, but what do you want? Do you actually want the Leaving Cert to go on this June as is normally and traditionally done? Because the teachers are saying that gives you the best outcome and the best results. We're also hearing as well from the CAO that they think it would be better to have it done that way. What is the Labour Party position? Our position is that we need to look at the calculated grades. It's very, which isn't an easy option either. There's no but easy option. But did you just hear what Kieran Christie hear what said about said. how much more difficult it would be to do it this year and how last year's calculated grades were regarded by many places as not working out very well. Yeah, Matt, but the worst possible solution is we get to late April, May, mid-May, and it's very clear that we will not be able to hold the Leaving Cert in any traditional way. So we need to make plans for this and we need to come up with a solution. And that needs to happen. And no one said it'd be easy. The virus is playing havoc with everything and it's playing havoc with our education system. And it highlights maybe in the future that we need to relook at our Leaving when Cert in general. When do you want general. schools back? How quickly do you think the teachers should go back into the schools? Uh, as, as soon as it's deemed safe by public health officials. Uh, and we need to get the, we need to suppress the numbers down. If the public health officials came out tomorrow and said 
that it would be safe for the schools to return. Do you think all the schools should automatically return? I very much doubt they would, given where the numbers are at the moment. No, They're still very, if they came out and said it the next few days, next week, if they said that they regard it for essential workers like the schools to go back, do you think that that should happen then? Uh, I, I think the public health officials would make that based on the numbers. The numbers are still very, very high. I mean, let's be realistic about that. So we need to get the numbers down, but hopefully as soon as possible. And stop making false promises. Stop making false deadlines. That would be my message to the Minister. And please, everyone, could they get back into the room? OK, we're going to change topic now. And we're going to Professor Karina Butler, who is chair of the National Immunisation <coughs> Advisory Committee, which has been advising the vaccination task force. She joins us now via Skype. We're hearing today now there's been a change in the deadline for getting the over 70s vaccinated. It's not going to happen by the end of March. It could be done by the end of, or by the middle of May. What do you make of that? Well, I think the vaccination for the over 70s is beginning uh, next Monday. And I think it will be rolled out as quickly as it can be done, bearing the supplies of the vaccine. What gives you that confidence that it will be rolled out as quickly as possible and that the only, perhaps, qualification is the supplies of the vaccine? Uh, because everybody is working really hard and wants to get it done. We recognise that the over 70s are our most vulnerable population. And I think there is great motivation on all sides from the general practitioners who will be involved, from the HSE, the vaccinator teams. I was looking today, and I think at this stage, there's over 5,000 vaccinators who have fulfilled the training requirements. Um, I think at the beginning of January, it was estimated at this stage there might be about 2,000. So I think everybody wants to see people vaccinated as quickly as possible, and that the only constraints will actually be vaccine supply. Well, what about the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine? Because it was decided recently not to give it to over 70s because of some concerns that had been expressed in Europe. But given that the World Health Organization says it's all right for the over 70s, should we revise the plan again, give it to our over 70s and get the job done faster? Well, I don't think that's going to delay anything in terms of the preference for the mRNA vaccines. But let's just go over why there was that preference made. Because there's nothing that has changed particularly with the WHO recommendations. Both the EMA, when they evaluated it, they uh, concluded, they authorised the vaccine for use across all ages, and that remains the same, and the WHO the same. And in fact, in our guidance that was there, the same recommendations were there. The AstraZeneca vaccine is a very safe vaccine, it certainly meets all the criteria having benefit. But what happened is we also have a choice with some other vaccines that have are reported to have higher efficacy rate than the AstraZeneca. And particularly in the older age groups, for example, the over 70s, who are the most vulnerable, you want to give them the vaccine that is most likely to get them protected as quickly as possible. And you will notice now also with the AstraZeneca vaccine that there may be a preference for stretching out the interval between the first and second dose. So it may take a little bit longer to get to your maximum protection with it. Whereas with the mRNA vaccines, you reach that point about with the Pfizer vaccine seven days after your second dose. 
So it was really in the sense of having a choice, which we have in Ireland at the moment, and wanting to give the vaccine with the highest efficacy to those who were most vulnerable and most likely to end up hospitalised or, or intensive care. The Taoiseach Michal Martin had indicated today that he's confident that we can get the mass, critical mass vaccinations done by September. How realistic, though, is that? Well, I have to be guided by the people who look at the numbers of the population and what they estimate the rollout to be. But I think that is a wonderful target to have. And I really hope we will get there because I do think that vaccination is going to give us the way to normalizing our lifestyle again. And there's a lot of encouragement there. Just looking at some of the data that has come out from Israel uh, just in the last couple of days, and they started vaccinating their older age groups. And they've just reported how the hospitalization rates for their over 60s for the first time in the pandemic have dipped below the hospitalization rates for the under 60s. So they're seeing that impact of vaccination come in. And so I think that's very interesting. And here even, we've begun to hear just the indication that the uh, infection rates in healthcare workers are beginning to fall. And that, again, is an impact because they're falling at a greater rate than their rates of infection in the community are coming down. OK, one so final I quick question, Karina. Sorry. Uh, given that there are concerns about whether a variance to COVID-19 will be covered by these vaccines, what level of vaccination of the population do you think we need to achieve to allow for significant lifting of restrictions? Well, I think um, in terms of the variants, uh, we have to be very careful because they can be imported from other countries. But we also have to be careful about how we allow the virus transmit and replicate in our own community. Because this is a virus that is, if you like, mutation prone. And so changes can emerge. It doesn't necessarily have to rely on it coming from somewhere else. So. Everything that we do to reduce transmission of the virus will reduce the chance that we will get strains that may be more difficult to deal with. So for right now, the main strain that we have is the so-called UK variant, and the vaccines have got good efficacy against that. And it's encouraging data as well in terms of the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine and their impact on even the South African strains as well. But again, the good point is the technology in these vaccines allows the possibility for the vaccines, if necessary, to be modified. And so it may be potentially that there will have to be booster doses of vaccine, depending on how things evolve over time. OK, that's encouraging. Thank you very much, Karina Butler, for joining us here on The Tonight Show. We're going to move now, though, to breaking news of a fatal shooting in Ballymun. We're joined live now by Sarah O'Connor. What can you tell us of this? There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yep. Yeah. Sorry, Sarah, what can you tell us of what has happened in Ballymun this evening? Yes, Matt. Well, this happened at around 9pm tonight, tonight at Belclare Terrace in Ballymun in North Dublin. Uh, it happened at the end of a cul-de-sac in a housing estate there. Residents heard a number of gunshots at around 9 o'clock and called emergency services. A man believed to be in his 40s was shot dead. The body remains at the scene at the end of the cul-de-sac there, and emergency services are at the scene. Quite a few uh, detectives are there already. The scene has been uh, cordoned off ahead of the arrival of uh, scenes of crime investigators and the technical bureau, uh, and a murder investigation will be underway. Uh, the victim, it's understood, uh, was an associate of a Kinahan gang member who was jailed last year. So, Matt, we'll have more information in relation to that fatal shooting in our bulletins in the morning. Thank you very much, Sarah O'Connor. We're going to leave it there for part one. Peter Burke and Duncan Smith are staying with us. And after the break, Dr Gabriel Scully will be giving us his view on the latest UK border controls. And later, love and lockdown. We'll find out if it's possible to date at a distance. Minister of State Peter Burke and Labour TD Duncan Smith are still with us. And joining us now via Skype is Dr Gabriel Scally, Professor of Public Health at the University of Bristol. Gabriel, if 2020 was something of a disaster for Britain when it came to COVID, with about 110,000 people dead, has 2021 been much better with their vaccination rates and a greater degree of seriousness with regard to allowing movement in and out of the country? Well, you're right. Last year was a, a dreadful year for the UK government and its handling of the, the virus. It has started better in one sense, the vaccination, but it did start on a, uh, like, like Ireland did, on a bad uh, stretch of cases, a huge increase. Again, uh, relaxation before and in the run-up to Christmas uh, set the scene for a very bad January with a huge number of deaths and a huge number of cases. But the vaccination has definitely been a high spot and they've uh, now vaccinated, I think, more than 12 million people. In fact, I had mine today, which was very good. And, uh, and that's at least a month ahead of what I was expecting. So vaccination, yes, but that can be so easily undone by the variants. And one of the good things that they have managed to do is they can track the variants. They've got very good sequencing sequence between 5 and 10% of all tests, all the PCR tests done. So they're on top of that, sort of. You're right about the uh, uh, travel restrictions. They are going to introduce a limited 
travel restrictions on a limited number of countries. And it isn't, that isn't really good enough. And uh, so I, I think they're going to have to think again about where they go to from here. Well, the path it does forward seem is to be tougher than what we're doing in this country when it comes to restrictions. I mean, are there things that we should be doing more in lockstep, do you think, with the British to give a sort of a two-island approach if we're not able to do things properly on our own on this island? Well, well, the travel is the key one, isn't it? I mean, that's where the variants are likely to come from. Uh, from they will be, the, the virus only travels one way, and that's on in human bodies, and, and passengers bring it in. And they could bring it from anywhere in the world, from South Africa. I'm very worried about the Brazilian variants, for example. And what we really need to do is actually follow Scotland's example. And they've banned international arrivals and uh, are arguing very strongly for a really tight suppression strategy. What Ireland is doing well, however, and has done consistently well, is the contact uh, tracing and the testing of, of close contacts. Uh, I think not many people appreciate that in the UK, they don't test close contacts at all unless they show symptoms, whereas I know uh, the Republic is now moving to test all contacts twice. And that's a really good thing that Britain could actually learn from the Republic, because the Republic is in line with international guidance. The UK, including Northern Ireland, isn't. Peter Burke, the British are adding 33 countries to their red list for incoming flights. We're only adding 18. We've allowed places like Portugal and Dubai to fly people into this country when the British had stopped. Why are we slow in copying what they're doing? Well, I don't think we're slow. It's constantly under review. I would say, first of all, there is mandatory quarantine in this country enforceable by penal law for anyone coming in. Non-essential travel is essentially banned. That is also enforceable by law. The penalty has been quadrupled uh, now that it has been approved by Cabinet. Uh, and that is there to be enforced. So I think we have taken a very aggressive uh, approach to it. And also, it's logistically taken a bit of time to uh, set up the hotel structured operational aspect uh, of those uh, countries. But once that quarantine is set up, obviously people have to go to their various Duncan, different locations. Is that enough and has it been done fast enough? No, it's been the opposite of aggressive. It's been lax. It's been very lax and it's always been lax. And that's why we're in the situation we're in. That's why the variants have taken such hold here. Um, and, you know, we've been calling for, from last summer, uh, testing regimes in the airport we've been talking and our ports we've been talking about mandatory quarantining uh, and this government and particularly it must be said the Taunashta has always resisted this or pierced holes in this and it's never gotten off the ground we've had Stephen Donnelly when he was minister in August stating that we would be bringing in testing at the airport that never happened like it's been absolutely a disaster. It hasn't done anything. Uh, even the measures uh, haven't done anything to help the aviation industry either. I mean, that's more or less flatlined, uh, and there's no sense that they're going to protect jobs there as well. So it's an absolute disaster on every single level. And there really is the it is the one area I think that has been a total failure. Everyone coming in has to have a test. That's the first thing. You have to have a PCR test coming into the country. That's legally enforceable from uh, the 16th of January. Yeah. So that's so to put across a false Your narrative that you don't done require that earlier. That all the times last year when people were looking for it to be done, and you kept saying no, it wasn't possible. And suddenly, in the year that we're actually getting vaccinations, 
it has to be done. Yeah, and things evolved rapidly. We got this new variant in December and that obviously accelerated the need uh, for it. But uh, it, this was a huge log logistical challenge. It's a very draconian measure and the government is going even further and further with quarantine to ensure that we can protect us against those variants and keep people as safe as possible. We should have always had tests. They never committed to it. They never looked at rapid testing. Now rapid testing, antigen testing is back on the table. It's an absolute but joke that's, that's that has taken so long. Antigen it's testing a, uh, has proven to be uh, totally disregarding asymptomatic people. You, you have to be really no, sim symptomatic no, for it to be picked up. No, There's huge it, holes It's not the gold standard PCR test, but it does have a use, and your own government are, are looking at it again. That's the vault of that's been happening on it. It's, it's, very been, limited, a, it's though, been a disaster, and it's been far too late. Can I go to you, Gabriel Scali? Because there are people suggesting that if we went for antigen testing, we could test an awful lot more quickly and a lot more in volume. Is that a good idea? Is it a reliable enough test? It has a, it has a function, but it's not a particularly useful function. And it is positively dangerous if you use it and you give people a, potentially a false reassurance because it may not pick up any more than 50% of the positive cases. So there is a role if you are testing very regularly, for example, in a workplace. Yes, absolutely. Could I just deal with this issue of uh, why now? Why put in the restrictions on travel now? There are thousands and thousands and thousands of people in Ireland who have been killed by COVID-19 throughout the course of the last 12 months. The fact that variants arrive now at this late stage is not an excuse for not putting proper public health controls on the ports and airports right from the very beginning. If those had been in place at the beginning, we'd have had less deaths at the beginning of the year. If they'd been in place during the summer, we wouldn't be flooded again with cases after the summer. And they need to be put in place now. And look at the tens of thousands of people who came in over Christmas. It is such an old, uh, a classic and a very, very effective public health measure to reduce infection and it should have been done months and months and months ago. Gabriel, there's something else I want to ask you about. Last year there would have been a situation where the numbers of confirmed cases in the north each day were running proportionately much higher than here in the Republic and people were talking about whether the border should be sealed, which we were told was impossible. But could it be that we'll end up with a situation that as they get closer to completing vaccinations in the north, which is way ahead of us, that they won't want us from the south going over the border when so few of us, by contrast, are vaccinated? Well, I think it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out, but I, I don't think that will happen. I think vaccination will plough ahead in the north and uh, they will uh, achieve a substantial protection for people who are in the most vulnerable categories. But variants may change all that very, very dramatically. Uh, I, I think the reason I think the reason why the North had such a bad record in the autumn months and the Republic didn't was what I mentioned earlier, that very good contact tracing done by the public health doctors and their teams and the fact that contacts were tested. And, and that's the, what we need more of. We need absolute repression of this virus and it should be getting easier now. And with public health controls on ports and airports to stop all cases coming in, and instead of the, the voluntary, uh, I know there are penalties attached, but it has been, let's admit it, a voluntary self-isolation regime. Uh, that should change, and we should really try and stamp the virus down, uh, down on the virus very, very firmly, north and south, and at a local level as well. Uh, local areas, local counties um, should be attempting to get down to 
very low numbers, levels of cases and keep them there. I think there is a path forward, but it's not living with COVID-19. You can't live with COVID-19. You can die of COVID-19. Well, Duncan Smith, on this programme last night, the Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, was talking about what he described as radical suppression. What do you think that means? Is that, do you think, that's another name for a zero-COVID approach, which they don't want to call it zero-COVID in case they fail to achieve it? Yeah, I mean, these are wonderful sounding words and we had a private member's motion uh, about a, a national aggressive suppression strategy. So if everyone is on the same page about suppressing this down to very low levels and keeping it there, then we don't need to worry about the naming of it. We need to have a strong public health response. We need to be getting the numbers down. And when the virus does break out, like and I thought Tomas Ryan, uh, Dr. Tomas Ryan had a, a very uh, apt description last night that it's like a fire rather than a flood, that we need to put it out where it emerges, put it out where it emerges. If we do that, and if we're all on the same page, we don't need to worry about the title. Let's get the suppression down. So is this what's down. going to be in the Living with COVID revised document coming out quite soon, uh, that we're going to go for radical suppression, which effectively means, with the exception of schools, everything is still going to remain shut down until May? I think the options are going to be very limited because the government is going to be exceptionally cautious because of the circumstances we're in. Uh, numbers are still very, very high. And obviously with this uh, new variant, that's the dominant variant, the UK one, uh, it's up to 70 plus percent more transmissible. Uh, close contacts, 20 percent of them are tending to be positive was 10 in the previous uh, variant. So we really have to be very careful. But I think we need to aggressively suppress it. And uh, the problem is that, you know, there's a lot of slogans going around. Zero COVID means a lot to very different people. It can mean 14 days without a case. And if you get one case or two cases, go into uh, an aggressive uh, week lockdown like what happened in Perth. Uh, if we adopt that type of aggressive strategy, uh, we'd be locking down every week. So I think you just have to be honest with people in the first instance that when you have uh, the unique geography that you have in Ireland, it is impossible to get an absolute zero COVID position. We never got in this country over the tightest of lockdowns, but we want an aggressive um, uh, uh, structure. And I would agree with the professor, you, you can't live with it. There's no doubt in that, but you have to aggressively suppress it to give you more options. And obviously when we vaccinate our population, that will obviously give us a, a greater buffer of certainty. Very briefly to finish you, you featured on the programme last night because we showed pictures of you taking on the Healy Rays. In the spirit of Valentine's Day is coming up, do you see yourself kissing and making up with the Healy Rays at any stage? Uh, no, there'll be one person I'll be kissing on Valentine's Day. It'll be my wife and it won't be the Healy Rays. Will you ever make up with them? Well, look, it's not, it's not about them. I mean, what, what happened was we had a very strong motion. Uh, they decided to have not one, not two, but a couple of digs at the Labour Party. And they always do that. And they struck a, a nerve with me and I responded. Uh, and, uh, and you struck a nerve with them. I, 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 I may have struck a nerve with them. But it's important to make these points and it's important to call stuff out when you see, when you see it, as far as I'm so concerned. All's fair in love and war. Thank you very much uh, to Gabriel Scally, who was with us, and also to Peter Burke and Duncan Smith. But after the break, you may not be able to get your shift in coppers, but just how challenging is it to find love in a time of lockdown? We'll talk to Megan Scully and Ro McDermott about dating and relationships in a pandemic. Welcome back. Now, with restrictions in place and social distancing part of life, how do you meet somebody in a pandemic? How is lockdown affecting relationships? 
Roe McDermott joins us and also journalist and author Megan Scully via Skype. Megan, of course, you went so far as to let your mother pick your dates on national television previously. So how has dating been going for you in lockdown? Um, non-existent is what I'd say. Um, it's very hard to date in lockdown because obviously there's restrictions. I'm sticking to them, I'm following them and you just can't really date. Now, obviously there's virtual and online dating, but it's just not the same anymore. Why? Why are you not finding online dating to be a useful substitution for the traditional thing? The issue is with it, you... Dating apps pre-COVID weren't the best for meeting people. And I have friends and I have met people in the past on dating apps, but I think as time has gone on, people kind of just seem to... They'll match you and then they won't message you and then you might message them and they won't message you back. And this whole ghosting kind of happens. So I found during lockdown, anytime I use dating apps like that, you'd start chatting to someone and sometimes you'd either get ghosted or else you'd turn into pen pals. And with no end in sight, with the whole restrictions going on and on, it's kind of just hard to keep going and you kind of just both lose interest really. And you kind of get fed up because not really much to talk about these days. Well, McDermott, this is actually a serious topic in the sense that, you know, we talk about isolation and loneliness and often think about it just for older people, but it happens, doesn't it, across all age groups and particularly younger people as well out there in the dating world who suddenly feel, find they can't go from over five kilometres from their own home. They can't go to the places where they normally would have met the people that they might have met first online. Yeah, I think people often dismiss the idea of single people wanting to date and meet people during a pandemic as one of the more frivolous issues or they're being selfish. But dating at its core is about hope and it's about connection. It's about wanting to connect with people. It's about, even if it's a bad date, wanting to get a good story out of it. And at a time where we are more isolated than ever, when we are lonelier than ever, when people are really suffering from touch starvation, not having physical affection if they're not around friends and family, losing a huge source of connection and hope is huge for single people. So I think taking that seriously is important, making sure single people have emotional support from their family and friends, that that desire to date isn't dismissed, and then ensuring that they can connect with people safely, which, as Megan has experienced, is often through online dating. And then meeting with people, meeting when you're masked, mm. if you find you have a physical attraction to somebody, is there a fear almost of being touched because is that going to spread COVID? Yeah, I think there's something really interesting. I think one thing COVID is offering us is a chance to reframe how we think about dating and kind of these more casual interactions and seeing where they lead. Because something that's been normalised in dating culture is, you know, trying to be apathetic and a bit cool and not discussing expectations or what you're looking for. And now, because of COVID, we have to discuss expectations and boundaries and safety very early. Because when it is safe to meet up with people, you have to discuss how are you going to handle social distancing? If there's a chance for physical contact, are you comfortable isolating before and after? You have to talk about the physical contact they've had with others. So it's actually about shifting the conversations that we've had and becoming more comfortable with discussing these very early and very honestly and openly. Could it also mean that as people's relationships develop that there can be a fear of sex as well? Because again, I mean, there's not a condom for COVID, is there? Again, I think it's about discussing safety. And again, a lot of the conversations that should be happening around sex ideally can't translate to COVID in terms of exclusivity, safety, what people are comfortable with. And I think it comes down to basic ideas of consent, like making sure people are comfortable with taking the next step, whatever that is, if it's you know reducing your social distancing, if it's isolating together, if it's having sex ultimately. But it's about discussing people's comfort levels, their boundaries and safety upfront and honestly.
Megan, you're down in Limerick, and of course, one of the other issues that there is for many people is the five-kilometre rule. So even if you did meet somebody that you liked online, they might be outside the boundaries. And that's something that must be particularly difficult for people in rural Ireland. Yeah, I think the five-kilometre rule has definitely uh, slimmed down our chances of meeting maybe new people, because I think at this stage, we all know the people that live in our 5K. So if you're in the countryside, it's more than likely your your friends or your family but in like cities like where i am in limerick i've gotten to know people from just seeing them walking the three bridges and at this stage now i feel like i nearly know everyone within my 5k so yeah you nearly would have to set your dating kilometers to within the 5k if you do obviously want to stick to the guidelines which you should be um, or else i suppose if you're going to expand further then i guess the hope is that you can meet someone as restrictions ease but the news that's been coming out today saying that this is going to go on and on and I've been chatting to quite a few single friends about this, and they all just said that it's they find it really hard to even just keep that spark going with someone they haven't physically met. And then the chance of not being able to physically meet has been really kind of putting a dampener on things. And everyone just has kind of lost that zest for dating as well, I feel. Could this also lead road to a lot of people turning to pornography as an alternative? Well, I think for sexual outlets, that's definitely one. But I think as Megan has addressed, people, they're missing dating. They're missing connecting with people and thoughtful interactions. And again, I think it's about shifting our mindset because I think, as Megan addressed, online dating has become quite apathetic and people get addicted to swiping rather than talking to people. And it's almost, there's a consumer term called the paradox of choice. When you're presented with too many choices, you almost shut down and don't value them. What about established relationships? I mean, how much difficulty a lot of people are having in that Maybe they've been going up with somebody for a little while or somebody was working or studying abroad. I mean, I think this is something you know a bit about yourself, isn't it? Yeah, I think ultimately a lot of relationships now have turned into long-distance relationships just because people aren't allowed to socialise together or be together or whatever distance they're working on. And I think what's really important is to acknowledge our circumstances and the context of our lives have changed hugely. And what's going to keep us going is adapting to these new circumstances and in a way that feels sustain, sustaining and fulfilling for everybody instead of trying to rigidly hold on to a pre-COVID relationship model that might leave everyone feeling exhausted and drained or even resentful. So it might be about thinking about time in terms of uh, quality versus quantity. So for some people, it might be important to talk to your significant other every day on the phone. But for others, that might feel actually quite draining and performative because life is very boring right now. People aren't doing, you know, there's not as much to talk about on a day-to-day -day basis. So it might be about saying, let's have fewer conversations during the week, but let's make sure that we're doing an activity maybe together, like online or watching a movie together and having engaged, thoughtful interactions rather than constant communication. And then something else on the flip side of that, and you write about relationships mm. in the Irish Times magazine every weekend. What about people who are suffering because they see too much of each other now because of lockdown, that instead of being going out to work and having hours away from each other, that the constant interaction and being there in a confined space isn't good for the relationship. Again, I think it's about adapting to new circumstances and having open conversations about boundaries and what feels good for each other right now. So again, people aren't designed to be around someone 24 hours a day, which is often people's reality right now. So about saying, let's have individual time away from each other, let's exercise separately maybe, or let's watch different things at different times, and then come together in a thoughtful and engaged way. I think one of my favourite things to recommend to people is when conversations are feeling a bit stale. There's New York Times have a question 
questionnaire of 36 questions that can lead to, lo lead to love. And it's questions like, what was your most embarrassing moment? Or what have you regretted most in your life? And it's a way of opening up conversations that particularly for long-term couples, you might not have had in a very long time, if at all. And I think in long-term relationships, people grow and evolve, but we don't keep asking those questions. So it's a way of reconnecting with your partner. Well, could it be, and I don't want to sound negative, completely coming into Valentine's weekend, but that there could be a lot of separations and divorces might end up being the result of the lengthy time people spend together. I think I've gotten a lot of letters into the column about this issue, about people saying, I want to end my relationship. This isn't working for me and I feel very guilty. I think something that is important is people break up because their circumstances change all of the time. This is a huge shift in circumstance. If a relationship is no longer emotionally fulfilling or supportive, maybe a break from it isn't the worst thing, but respect what you need and have open communication. Okay, our thanks to Megan Scully and Ro McDermott for being with us. Now, it's not just Valentine's Day on Sunday. There's also Six Nations rugby to look forward to. Virgin Media sports analyst Alan Quinlan joins us now via Skype to look forward to the Ireland-France game in particular. And I suppose, Alan, the first thing I want to ask you about is the two players who went off with head injuries last weekend, James Ryan and the captain, Johnny Sexton. What do you reckon the chances are that they'll be selected to play this game on Sunday? Uh, I think they'll probably be slim enough, Matt. Um, it's it's a very hot topic at the moment, concussions and the head knocks in the game. And I think it's it's something that uh, is a pretty serious issue, I think. And um, obviously, with two players getting concussion, um, seven days later being expected to play. Well, I don't think they're being expected to play from from the Irish management, but you know they've they've to go through the HIA protocols and and be asymptomatic before that process starts at graduated return to play. So we heard during the week that um, both players were, were responding pretty well. But for me, it's it's a big ask to, to, to ask them to go out and play again or to have them go out and play again. Of course, Alan, how often do players, though, insist that they want to play, that they're OK, because it's so important to play in big games like this when they might not necessarily be 100% fit or be in the best position to make a judgment for themselves? I, I think that scenario has changed, Matt. I suppose when I played, um, and all players, Johnny Sexton, James Ryan, will be very keen and anxious to play, but the whole mentality around protecting yourself and doing what's right, and not only for yourself, but for the team, is is very, very um, important in the modern game. I think certainly there was a, a scenario in times gone past where players would would try to convince doctors that they were okay, whether it be, you know, and obviously it's a, if you have a lower ligament injury, a lower leg injury, it's different, but particularly around the head area and the, the concussions, I don't think anyone has taken any risks. Certainly the medics won't take any risks or ill-advise the players. And the players, I think, I believe, will be sensible themselves. If they are right, they'll play. Um, like I said, it's a big asset to play a game seven days later um, with concussions. So I don't think players, you know, everybody wants to play, but I don't think they'll make um, ill-advised or, or stupid decisions, I think, around, around playing. OK, but on the other hand, then, we already are without Caelan Doris for concussion reasons. We may be without Johnny Sexton and, John and James Ryan, but can the Irish team do it without those players against such a good and exciting team as France? Yeah, they're a big loss. Johnny Sexton's your captain. James Ryan is, uh, is a wonderful player. So, and, and, you know, there's a lot spoken about Peter O'Mahony going off last week and ascending off, but James Ryan going off as well was a big blow to the team. Ian Henderson did come on and play well. 
and he will start if James Ryan doesn't. I think at out half, it's either going to be Billy Burns or Ross Byrne. So both those players would be a big loss. I still think Ireland can do it. And um, the one thing they shouldn't do, Matt, is go into the game with any uncertainty around the players because I'm not really sure how much training they would have done if they make it during the week. And, and sometimes that can hinder preparation. So um, if they're not fit and ready to go, I think Ireland have just got to dust themselves down and, and the players who come in... Um, perform themselves. You mentioned Caelan Doris. I think he is a big loss, but every team has, has injuries. And Just look at Wales last Sunday. But certainly France are coming to Dublin full of confidence and it's going to be a very difficult, highly pressurised challenge for Ireland. It could be an absolutely great game, though. You can catch all the Six Nations matches live here on Virgin Media 1 and on the Virgin Media Player. The kickoff is 1.30 on Saturday for England against Italy and Scotland against Wales. And from 2 o'clock on Sunday when Ireland take on France. Alan Quinlan, thank you very much for being with us here on The Tonight Show. Cheers, Matt. Well, that's the weekend sorted out anyway, and that's all we have time for tonight. Thank you to all of our guests for being with us. I'll be back on Radio Today FM tomorrow afternoon, and then Kira Doherty will be back here on Monday evening at 10 o'clock. So for now, stay home and stay safe, and enjoy your Valentine's weekend. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.